Today's podcast is from the AUA 2019 annual meeting with the take-home messages in infertility and andrology, as well as sexual dysfunction. Thank you. Thank you to the AUA for inviting me to present the take-home messages on male infertility and andrology. The first abstract I would like to highlight is from the Utah group. This study is yet more proof that our current gold standard test for male infertility assessment is quite imperfect. The group studied almost 7,000 men over a 20-year period and found that the best predictors of pregnancy were age of the male, number of previous children, median income, total modal count, and never smoking. In fact, never smoking was a stronger predictor than any single semen parameter. This study highlights the need for improved diagnostics and a better understanding of the socioeconomic and behavioral forces at play in the male fertility space. The next abstract I'd like to highlight again is on the semen analysis. Our assessment of sperm morphology has evolved tremendously over the years, and the most recent edition of the WHO, the fifth edition, uses the strict morphology. Group out of Cornell assessed the correlation between the WHO fifth edition strict morphology assessment and the fourth edition morphology score, and found that the Kendall rank coefficient was 0.84. So perhaps the additional cost and time associated with strict morphology assessment is not warranted and doesn't change our clinical practice. Moving on to microtessy, how can we do better? A very interesting um, study out of the Utah group um, uh, went over a new device that they're developing uh, using microfluidics to process the microtessy samples to reduce sperm hunting time. As we all know, the success of a microtessy is highly dependent on the dedication and time spent by the andrology or andrologist or embryologist to hunt for sperm. This device drastically reduced the time needed to search for sperm from, microte- from microtessy samples. They used simulated samples from the ejaculate with very, very, very low concentrations. 25% of the sample volume was removed, 68% of the blood cells were removed, and they retained 98% of the sperm. I think we will be hearing more about this in the future. Um, Dr. Lundy from the Cleveland Clinic Group uh, presented an interesting study uh, developing a predictive nomogram model for successful sperm retrieval at the time of microtessy. The model is shown here. And uh, members of the audience were able to use this QR code to go to the model in real time and enter data. The the study lead then gets data feedback on how many people are using that nomogram at that time. So our hope is that this will give us real-time feedback on utilization of the nomogram and potentially allow us to, um, to validate it across large populations. Selection of who to operate on with adolescent varicocele is a constant source of debate and controversy in our field. Using peak retrograde flow as an indication for varicocele repair has been proposed. A group from Belgium presented an interesting abstract showing that in boys with peak retrograde flow greater than 38 centimeters per second, sperm DNA fragmentation is increased and motility is decreased. This data suggests that we should consider treatment of varicoceles in these boys given the evidence of sperm quality impairment. Some patients with varicocele will recur despite treatment. 
Dr. Chen and his group from Australia presented novel work showing a possible connection between May-Thurner syndrome, which is compression of the left common iliac vein with clinically significant varicoceles. 21 men with clinically significant varicocele underwent duplex ultrasound to determine the degree of compression as described in the vascular surgery literature. The incidence of left common iliac vein compression was 90% in men with varicocele compared to the expected incidence of 7%. This, sorry, this study suggests that pelvic venous congestion may be the underlying etiology in varic varicocele patients, making these patients at higher risk of recurrence. A major challenge to providing high-quality care to all male fertility patients is the lack of insurance coverage. Glazer et al. performed a cross-sectional study of male patients enrolled in fertilityiq.com to understand who was evaluated, who was treated, and who had coverage. Notably, 70% of survey respondents had between 0 to 25% of their care covered by insurance. With this, with this abstract in mind, a group from Nebraska searched for pricing for male infertility procedures on websites of SSMR members, finding that 89% of websites did not include pricing. Although this may be limited by institutional requirements, we must acknowledge that it's difficult for patients with limited financial means to find the most affordable services with competitive success rates, particularly given the findings of the first abstract that insurance coverage is poor. It seems to be common knowledge that women should not smoke while they're pregnant or trying to conceive. As is often true in the reproductive space, the impact of the male partner's lifestyle is often underemphasized. Sunapi et al. performed an interesting study looking at the effect of paternal nicotine exposure in rats. They found that male rats exposed to nicotine orally had higher levels of oxidative stress in the testis and the epididymis, and pups born from female rats who had mated with the nicotine-exposed rats had lower body weights at all postnatal time points. This study demonstrates that nicotine exposure alone may be problematic for men trying to conceive. And this is important, particularly in an era where smoking alternatives like vaping are becoming very popular. The use of marijuana is on the rise, and many users view it as not harmful. This group from Brazil compared standard semen parameters in intracellular reactive oxygen species um, and DNA fragmentation between marijuana users, tobacco users, and fertile controls. In their study, marijuana users had worse semen parameters, higher levels of DNA fragmentation, and higher levels of oxidative stress than both the tobacco users and the controls. This suggests that marijuana use may not be as benign as some think. And the last abstract that I'd like to highlight evaluated the impact of a best practice statement and testosterone deficiency guidelines on testosterone prescribing patterns by urologists for the treatment of male infertility. A survey was completed by 191 urologists, all members of the AUA, and 24.4% of respondents reported that they would use testosterone as a treatment for male infertility. This is unchanged from the findings when this survey was sent out in 2010. This suggests that perhaps our guidelines and best practice statements are not reaching the audiences that they need to be. Thank you very much for your time. See you next year. Thank you to the AUA for the invitation to give the take-home messages on sexual dysfunction. This was an absolutely fantastic meeting for sexual dysfunction. There were 119 posters, 60 podiums, 12 videos, seven plenary sessions, and six courses. We'll uh, kick it off with female sexual dysfunction and podium 2003 by Giovanotti. So the female periurethral tissue contains numerous glands which stain positive for PSA, which may contribute to sexual function. 
Decreased sexual function, and particularly lower orgasm satisfaction, has been reported following mid-urethral sling placement to treat stress urinary incontinence. So the goal of the investigators was to further histologically characterize the uh, uh, periurethral tissue and examine patterns of innervation. And what they found was that the glandular, vascular, and neuronal structures of the periurethral tissue have multiple types of innervation consistent with a physiologic functional organ likely involved in female sexual response. And the next step will be to look at the histology further and see what modifications to the slings can be done to decrease sexual dysfunction. Podium 2012 by Gupta looked at radical cystectomy, and we know that radical cystectomy can significantly affect the sexual health and function of both females and males. The goal here was to characterize provider practice regarding sexual health counseling of radical cystectomy patients and whether practice differs between male and female partners. Patients, pardon me. They conducted a national survey of SUO members to assess topics included in pre- and post-operative sexual health counseling and identify barriers for counseling for patients and sexual health. And what they found was significant discrepancies between male and female uh, counseling following and before radical cystectomy, highlighting the importance of you know, overcoming these barriers, particularly in the female population. We'll move forward to erectile dysfunction. And podium 4409 by Toe. Uh, was looking at IPPs and infection. We know that patients with diabetes are at increased risk of infection after implantation of an IPP. The goal here was to investigate the use of guideline adherent prophylaxis in preventing infection in diabetic men undergoing primary penile prosthesis implantation. The data was retrospectively collected for 686 diabetic patients from 17 institutions. And what they found was that after adjusting for age, hemoglobin A1C, preoperative blood glucose, glucose approach, and the presence of diabetes-related complications, the use of AUA guideline antibiotic prophylaxis was a significant risk factor for postoperative infections, incurring a five-time higher risk of infection. They also found that 35% of cultures grew anaerobes or fungi that would not be accounted for in the current guidelines. So certainly an important that we address the AUA guidelines for IPP infection protocols. Moving to podium 4402 by Lucas, the goal here was to assess the use of a novel multimodal analgesia protocol in men undergoing IPP implantation. This was a multi-center comparison versus a matched historic cohort of patients managed via an opioid-based protocol. And looking at visual analog, analog scores, they were significantly lower in the MMA group and the PACU on postoperative day zero and on postoperative day one. Similarly, patients in the MMA group used fewer narcotics and had a smaller proportion of patients requiring narcotic refills. And if you can look here on the right at the protocol, it included pudendal and dorsal penile blocks as well as a combination of acetaminophen, gabapentin, meloxicam, and only a limited amount of opiates. Moving on to Peyronie's disease and to moderated poster 6514 by Bradshaw. The penile duplex Doppler ultrasound is a good study that can look at the macro circulatory changes in Peyronie's disease. The goal here was to assess a novel technique, which is the laser speckle contrast imaging to evaluate penile microvascular perfusion. So they performed duplexes at baseline at five and 15 minutes post intracavernosal injection. Then they performed LSCI at baseline and with maximum achieved erection. And they, what they found is four patients demonstrated penile microvascular perfusion increases of more than 20% with erections, while, while two patients with Peyronie's disease and significant fibrosis demonstrated only 0 and 3% increase. So they suggest that LSCI has the potential 
to be a non-invasive, non-operator bias technique to evaluate penile hemodynamic on a microvascular level uh, in the future, but further studies are needed. Staying with Peroni's moderated poster 5901 by Milenkovic, the goal here was to characterize the transcriptomic signature of plaques from Peroni's patients and compare it to the normal tunica albuginea using RNA sequencing and network analysis. They collected surgical tunica albuginea samples from six Peroni patients and six controls. And what they found was differential gene expression was identified in 819 over and 475 underexpressed genes in Peroni's patients. They also found gene ontology revealed an active inflammation with extracellular matrix remodeling and leukocyte-mediated immunity. And they suggest that toll-like receptor activation could be an important pathway in PD pathophysiology, and this process is potentially maintained through macrophages. This is really exciting, and it might potentially open the avenue for new uh, options for preventing and potentially treating Peroni's disease. Again, staying with Peroni's with moderated poster 6518 by Ziegelman. Here, the goal was to assess a novel, novel penile traction device called Restorex. They conducted a randomized controlled trial of 120 men with Peroni's disease with at least 30-degree curvature. There were four groups. One group did not receive traction, and three other groups received either one, two, or three hours of traction per day for three months. And they found that at three months, penile traction improved penile lengths by 1.4 centimeters, uh, penile curvature by 9 degrees, the Peroni's disease questionnaire psychological and physical domain, and restored ability to penetrate at a better level than placebo. And 19% of patients indicated that therapy need, negated a need for surgery. Another abstract by the group showed some cost-benefit to doing Restorex for the treatment of Peroni's disease, but more data is needed. Moving on to hypogonadism and moderated poster 5808 by Posielski. Osteocalcin has been shown to regulate testosterone production in mice and may offer a promising target for the treatment of hypogonadism. The goal here was to evaluate the relationship between osteocalcin and testosterone in a prospective cohort of 92 men and use a rat model to assess the effect of replacement on osteocalcin. And what they found here was that total testosterone and free testosterone were both positively correlated with um, uh, osteocalcin, but testosterone supplementation did not alter osteocalcin. This potentially might be a new avenue for the management of hypogonadism. Moderated poster 5810 by Bernie. Uh, the goal here was to assess biochemical recurrence rates in 1,400 men with high-risk prostate cancer with and without testosterone replacement therapy. So they looked at 800 patients with normal testosterone and 600 with low testosterone. 590 did not receive replacement and 24 received replacement. Overall, the biochemical recurrence rates were 64%. They were 57% in the normal testosterone group, increased to 75% in the low testosterone group that was not on replacement, but decreased significantly to 46% in the low testosterone group that received replacement. Here it's possibly suggesting a paradigm shift in testosterone replacement and prostate cancer. We move on to ejaculatory dysfunction in podium 2808 by Mercer. The goal here was to assess the effect of a single oral dose of 5-HT1A antagonist on ejaculatory latency time. They included 35 male subjects with premature ejaculation in a phase one double-blind placebo-controlled parallel group masturbation model study. And what they found compared to placebo, using the medication increased ELT by 16% with a three milligram dose and 77% with a seven milligram dose, but there was no significant difference between the dosing. And 20% of patients reported headaches. More studies are needed to validate this.
Moving on to priapism and podium 4407 by Yim. Here the goal was to assess penoscrotal decompression as a gland-sparing alternative to shunt procedures for the surgical relief of refractory ischemic priapism. 14 men who failed distal T-shunt or irrigation injection and who did not obtain a proximal shunt were included with a long time to presentation. They successfully achieved prompt resolution with 100% of patients and normal erectile function was preserved in six. We know that proximal shunting has more or less been abandoned and the question here is whether distal shunting is gonna be replaced now by this novel decompression through a scrotal approach technique. Finally, when we look at transgender medicine, moderated poster 4003 by Vidovo, uh, we know that the available literature does not provide any questionnaire to evaluate sexual function after female, male to female gender reassignment surgery. The goal of the authors was to validate a novel questionnaire operated male to female sexual function, uh, female sexual function index. The questionnaire was, was administered to 65 male to female patients and 57 women. And using these three domains, sexual dissatisfaction, genital self-image, sexual pain with 18 questions, they, had, they achieved a high degree of internal consistency with the FSFI with Cronbach's alphas of 0.64 to 0.93 for the three domains. This questionnaire is currently only in Italian and is being validated in English. And with the rise in the gender reassignment surgery rates, this will be a really important adjunct tool for all uh, surgeons and physicians. And on that note, I thank you for your attention.